0: It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today, my guest is a drummer, composer, arranger, an educator, and a truly inspiring force of nature. Her name is Sherry Miracle. She leads the Diva Jazz Orchestra... He is also the leader of a quintet five play. Sherry also co-leads the 3D Jazz Trio. multi-award winning jazz artist and her bands have performed at many of the world's most acclaimed music festivals and venues. In this episode, I have a fascinating discussion with Sherry about the route that led her to the drums, her love of big band music, the changing role of women in jazz, and the constant challenge of recognition and acceptance. Here now is that conversation. Let me start out by just simply saying, Sherry, thanks for joining us here on All That's Jazz.
1: Wow, my pleasure. Total pleasure to be here.
0: Well, it's a distinct honor to have a giant of a talent in our presence today. And it's always been a labor of love for me, especially when I do my radio show, for example, in Denver. I've played your music, that of the Diva, the 3D Trio, the Five Play group, etc. And and it's always been a, a real joy just listening to the music and what you bring to the table. You are originally from Buffalo, and tell us a little bit about the quick backstory of how you really got started with music. It seemed a little odd that you started out, I think, was it in the third or fourth grade with uh, being involved in music, and it was sort of all over the board, including one thing that is a little disturbing to me is that at one point you were considering playing the trumpet, but that was for boys <laughs> only. Seriously,
1: yes. I didn't know that trumpets were male until my fourth grade teacher announced uh, when I picked my instrument. When I was excited to join the band, I was told uh, girls can't play the trumpet, and I was like, also flabbergasted, Alan. Like you just said, and I like I had no clue that instruments had gender, which <laughs> is clearly ridiculous. Yeah, it, definitely. And I don't think that was that was not uncommon. Music teachers somehow in their uh, uh, lack of. The wisdom and understanding of the universe assigned gender to instruments, which is clearly ridiculous. Anyway, so yeah, I was uh, started out on a metal clarinet at the same time I had, a, I started to play cello and this was in fourth grade. I had a great, great uh, string teacher named uh, Mr. Bryden, Ivan Bryden in the town of actually Endicott, New York. My family moved from Buffalo when I was about five years old. But I, I keep going back to Buffalo every year because of my Buffalo Bills madness. So every year I have to go back for a game. But anyway, <laughs> after my initial debacle of finding my voice or my my passion in music, um, around in, uh, I think it was in sixth grade, the band director needed somebody to uh, hit some extra percussion instruments. And I was sort of miserable on my metal clarinet. And I was like, I'll volunteer. I'll go back. I'll do something. And w- when I got back in the percussion section, I was like, nope, I'm home. And uh, I was always loved when my father would take me to parades and things and loved watching the marching bands and was always really mesmerized and loved the drums, the marching drums. And so, um, yeah, I just felt like this is where I belong. And then flash forward, the teacher took me to see Buddy Rich and his Killer Force Orchestra in 1974 at the Forum in Binghamton, New York. Was in the last row of the balcony. And when when I saw the band, first impression, Watched Buddy come out in a t shirt while the band was in tuxedos and they hit that first note, every single hair on my body stood on end. I mean, I mean, it. I was completely electrified by what I heard, and I had never heard that in my entire life, any music like that. And that's it. I ran home. I said, Mom, I have no idea what this music is. I never heard jazz, I but I have to do this. I have to play this big, I have to be a big band player. <laughs> it was very, you know, I never, I never had to think about what I wanted to do for a living again since I was 11.
0: Since you came back to the house and you uh, made the announcement uh, and the revelation that you were going to be a drummer, were you then uh, relegated to the garage?
1: No, my mother was flabbergasted, I think, and didn't know what I was talking about and sort of patted me on the head and probably thinking, oh, it's some phase that she'll get over. But I give her all the the credit in the universe. She completely supported me and literally had no no idea about anything to do with jazz whatsoever. She loved country music and Irish folk music. Our family's from Ireland. And um, she she bought me my first drum. The music studio ripped her off because I said, mom, we have to start out. I need a snare drum. So the music studio sold her some weird, funky, strange tom-tom that had this funny brown covering on it. And I I could never, well, I told her now, but the whole time I was growing up, I could never tell her it was the wrong drum. But I practiced on that silly tom-tom <laughs> until I got my first gold sparkle, probably Kmart level drum set that she also bought for me. And then I was stuck in the basement after that.
0: <laughs> you know, you mentioned that it made you have your hair stand on end. And it, it's, it's true that the drum does that. And it is a calling. and and it's uh, very uh, exotic, especially like, for example, when you go to and listen to a drum line, you can't help but get absorbed emotionally into it. and And people love listening to the drums. And look at, I mean, even you know this uh, as a professional in the business. when people go out to a club somewhere uh, or any performance venue and the drummer gets the solo, all of a sudden, everyone just goes crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's the—I uh, mean—rhythm, period, in, in all across all genres of music is such a powerful primal force that we all respond to. You know, without getting too deep into it, I think that's definitely part of it. It's just that you know, if you're playing with a, a great groove and a great feel, and playing interesting rhythms and grooves and patterns, it will—it will definitely like almost like you're being hypnotized by it. It can be so strong. So I agree. And also just the drums, but man, the sound of the big band and that that orchestration and instrumentation, and the great orchestration of the charts was just, it's just a sound that I was just unbelievably drawn to. And I i mean, actually, you know, Alan, really, really when I tell this story, I feel like I'm 11. And at the actual, the feeling, I didn't have words when I was a kid, but when I was just telling you the story, my whole chest cavity, I don't know, i went, not to get too like esoteric and I like to say not too woo-woo about it, but opens like a clear channel. Like literally, it's a wide, I, it's hard to explain, but it's like a wide open feeling from my heart that just everything is like you know like this is right i'm on the right path this is the right thing for me and i feel it very very deeply probably like all musicians i'll speak for jazz musicians you know there's there's no way you could do this otherwise with any for any other reason you can't say huh like once when i was teaching at new york university a, a student's mother said excuse me as a parent open house what's the starting salary for a jazz drummer And I actually had an outburst of laughter until I realized she was asking me a serious question. So, you know, I I don't think that, I don't think it's, you can have any other motivation other than deep passion and love and love for it.
0: So by being a drummer, do you feel extra pressure on you when you're playing with a a group or an ensemble because you're the timekeeper, you in a sense set the pace uh, and, Pretty much are the leader in many ways. Of course, I wouldn't tell that to the principal saxophonist, but
1: uh, right. Yeah, I say like a lot. A lot of times in in most bands, big band probably drums and lead trumpet and bass. But I think bass and drums are clearly the foundation of of every band. We you know not band that has a rhythm section anyway. Uh, in certain situations, sometimes I can feel some uh, pressure or added responsibility, but it's definitely not definitely not my own bands because, like you said, I am the leader. <laughs> So if I make, a, I make a mistake, I was like, it might be wrong, but this is the way we're doing it. I'm, I'm kidding. But, you know, like I'll give you a funny example. Um, I played at an orchestra in New York called the New York Pops. Now, I, I know you were a Red Sox fan, so it's the same as the Boston Pops, but New York version. And there's it, like 80 people on stage and the, the great conductor Skitch Henderson, um, who, who left us a while ago, created this orchestra. We had a season at Carnegie Hall. And it would be like, oh, it, when he was, you know, telling us instructions, it would be strings, you know, brass Sherry, occasionally there's extra pressure, but you know, when you're prepared and you're, you know, you're, it's, it's your career, then you're, you're prepared to, to, you know, it doesn't feel pressure anymore. It's like, this is what I do. It's all good.
0: So I know you've had a lot of influences uh, in your life as well. You, you just mentioned uh skitch Henderson. Yeah. I know also that uh, you had some uh, influence from Mel Lewis uh, of the great Thad Jones, Mel Lewis fame. and, uh, I I was particularly drawn to that because in listening to an interview, I don't know if it was uh, with Marion McPartland, where you were talking about how Mel went out into the audience and he was yelling while you were playing louder did, yeah. or do this, do that, and it was maybe a little off-putting for some, but for you it was guidance.
1: Well, I had a I'm going to say not a not a not a not a blackout situation. <laughs> But it was so intense for me, musically and emotionally. He was um, my first teacher when I moved to New York in 1985, when I went to graduate school. And my lesson was sitting in with his band at the the Mel Lewis Jazz Orchestra. Not all lessons, and just uh, like one or two times. I remember one time extremely clearly playing the third set. And I was so nervous. Number one, because Mel's my teacher. Number two, it's one of the greatest bands in the world. Number three, there was an audience there. But it was the third set. So everybody already had, you know, a few drinks. So maybe Mel thought this will be a good idea. (laughs) And he said, what do you want to play? And I said, well, I can really I mean, I knew felt I knew all of not all, but I knew such a majority of that band's music, Thad Jones and Mel Lewis music and the Mel Lewis Jazz Orchestra, because I idolize them. Mel said, yeah, go back there because all the charts are back there. And I went back to sit behind his drums, and of course, there were no charts at all, <laughs> or they were on the floor in a in a pile. But luckily, I, I knew a lot of the music well enough, and I could look over and see the trumpet music. And then his drums with calf heads were, you know, if you're not used to that, in some cases, it feels like playing on a wet dish towel, you know, because they're a lot different than playing on synthetic plastic heads. So there's a lot... A lot going on, and as I walk up to the stage, some of the band members were uh, not fully supportive. They're like, oh, hey, Mel, can my aunt sit in? Hey, Mel, my little sister wants to play. You know, just being, (laughs) I'm going to say, not supported, kind of jerky about it. So that—that in this case, I felt extreme pressure. I was 21. I don't know. I don't remember anything about it. I swear to God, I don't I just stop him going, Sherry, switch cymbals, Sherry, play louder, which was so crazy because where I, where I grew up and everybody I played with is Sherry plays softer. And here I am in the most, one of the greatest bands ever in the history of the music and Sherry play louder. So I'm like, oh, so when the band is extremely powerful, when the band is amazing and phrases together and articulates together and breathes together and has a powerful force like this, then the drummer's role is different than so, in other bands that are not of that standard.
0: So is your major driving force the big band?
1: Yes. Yeah, without without question. I'm deeply, deeply, deeply um, inspired and have my own playing rooted in bands. Um, clearly, uh, the Mel Lewis band, Thad Jones band, the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, Toshiko Akiyoshi, I love, Woody Herman, I dreamed of being in that band when I was a kid, Maynard Ferguson, Stan Kendon, all of those bands, Count Basie. I I got to see most of those bands when I was a kid growing up in Endicott, New York, which is in the Southern tier of New York, not far from Pennsylvania, and all the bands like on their way between, let's say, I don't know, Pittsburgh or, and uh, New York. That was a great stopping point for them midway. And I I mean, I saw these groups and t- actually it was this place called the Endicott Motor Lodge, a tiny, tiny little weird, not even hotel, I mean like motel place. And they would play in there, and it it was amazing. And it was like five dollars or free. I don't even know how. I don't even know. <laughs> it was amazing. So I feel so lucky to be in that spot growing up. Uh, when I got into high school, my, my band director, his name was Chris Weber, and he he's like Sherry, check out some of these things. And it was he started really started me um, started my path of getting really interested in great small group playing. One of the first records I heard was uh, Milestones. Miles Davis, which to this day remains one of my favorite records of all times so with Cole Training Cannonball Adderley, and a Red Garland and Philly Joe. And it's got um, Billy Boy on that. Billy Boy, the trio, they played trio on that. Mm-hmm. And, and Paul Chambers, unbelievable. When I heard Philly Joe Jones, I was like, oh, what? That is such a different kind of swing. Like, you know, wow, I got to see what, I have to understand what this is now. And then started delving into more of that. Philly Joe is one of my favorite players. I would say my two very, very, very favorite ensembles to play with, definitely Big Band and definitely Trio. Mm-hmm. If the trio is that of the, the ilk of anything with Philly Joe or Bud Powell, Ray Brown's trio with Gene Harris and Jeff Hamilton is one of my favorite trios of all time. And now currently the Jeff Hamilton trio, which I also love so much, you know, because it's very much... I'm not, it's not in the style of big band, but there are there are great arrangements that it's, it swings. And by swing, I'm going to say groove, but in a rooted in the tradition of where great jazz standards and great great ensembles created unique arrangements and sounds with fantastic melodies. Even if it's even if it's an original, it's still rooted in the tradition. No, it's not trying to bend. I'm going to say it in, always have to say it in quotes, jazz, because jazz is so many things now. I didn't try to bend or twist or change it. It just added to it and made it the tradition deeper and richer, but still maintaining the qualities of the music that spoke to my heart and soul. Melody, great groove, great swing. You know, something that that makes people want to like tap their foot and just be inspired and entertained, versus something that makes you have to think so hard that smoke comes out of your ears. <laughs> you know, when you're at it. Sometimes I've been at, at listening to some groups and I'm like. I guess it's jazz, okay. Oh, and then there's you know wh- whatever you know. I don't know if you. But I'm sure you understand what I'm saying. Jazz oh, is I such do. a broad, broad, broad umbrella now. Every any if they don't know what it is, it's like oh, it's jazz, I guess. <laughs> so if you have to say is this jazz, then you know maybe mm-hmm. it's not.
0: <laughs> so in, in coming back to to big band music, uh, obviously uh, as director of the Diva Jazz Orchestra. Is it my understanding that you really were somewhat reticent to create an all-women band or be a part of it when you were asked by Stanley K to get involved back in what was it 92, 93?
1: Yeah, 92. No, I was for the first time I was actually enthusiastic about this project because prior to meeting Stanley, who I met in 1990, a lot of the all-women projects that were in and around New York and that I had had awareness of were um like not as not as musically deep as i w- I would have hoped um a lot of emphasis was placed on looks and appearance and little concern for the actual music that was being played it's like you know I actually I, I did play in some bands like that but I refused to put on the mini skirt etc I'm like you know what I'll play the drums but I'm not wearing that so if you want me in this band <laughs> you know here's what's gonna happen for for weddings and parties and things so not thrilled about it Now, of course, I learned much later through films like The Girls in the Band and in my own further education, there were women that always have clearly, this is so naive, but I've always played their their brains out. It's like brains out, asses off. Women that always have been playing great, but they were just overlooked by history. Only now, many, many of them are, are being brought to the forefront by a lot of researchers. But Stanley called me, and I knew tons of great women in New York nobody was getting called for some of the, the the you know, the top shelf gigs. And Stanley said, who heard me play in the, um, at the Schubert Theater in Connecticut, I was a drummer in an orchestra. Um, and Stanley came as a guest conductor with the great Maurice Hines, singer and dancer and entertainer. And Stanley called me and said, do you know women that play like you? Because he liked the way I play. Now, me being out of my mind meeting him because he was Buddy Rich's manager, like I was freaking out to begin with. And I just thought... I do. I know so many women that are so great in New York city. He said, let's, he goes, I want to get back in the band business. He said, I don't understand why there's all these big bands in New York. I see bands all the time and there's not a single woman in any of them. Hmm. And I said, uh-huh. I, w- we all wonder that as well. So in 19, in June of 1990, uh, he and our co-founder, John LaBarbera, who's a great writer with the Buddy Rich band also, uh, we had an audition. We like reached out through a bunch of universities. I was teaching at New York University at the time, and just uh, everybody. We said we're having an audition in New York. Who wants to come? You know, Stanley Kay's is putting this band together, and with um, forty women came to the original audition, including uh, Ingrid Jensen, some great players that are you know are great soloists on their own with their own you know stellar careers now, and put the band together. The original fifteen, and uh, that was in June of ninety-two. And I don't know why this worked out this way, but as we were commissioning all of our music, which we always do, uh, and pulling ourselves together and looking for playing opportunities, uh, nine months later, the band was born. (laughs) In March of 93, March 30th of 1993, we had our first performance. Everybody in Diva over the the history of the last 30 years has been amazing, amazing players.
0: Was it hard to find acceptance uh, by having an all-women jazz orchestra or big band?
1: Yes, people thought oh it's a it's a gimmick you know as as usual like everybody how everybody thought of the sweethearts of rhythm and anytime women get together in a male dominated field in some capacity it's like oh that's a gimmick that's you know a, a, a girl thing or any any minority it's not taken as seriously necessarily it's been my, my experience so the band got extremely great accolades everywhere we played and I will tell you a very This is an insane story to me, but we were playing at the Tavern on the Green in New York, had a great jazz club called the Chestnut Room. And it was the, I can't remember if it was the the APAP conference or the Jazz IAJE conference, Jazz Educators. I think it was APAP because Stanley Kay arranged for all of the European, not all, but a majority of the European, all the big European festivals were in town for this conference. And Stanley arranged a private performance because we were playing a week there. But we were going to play an afternoon show for them. They all came, at least 20, at least 20 of them and their guests. And we did this great show. And every one of them is like, oh, my God, you guys are so great. You're going to be in Europe for six weeks this summer. This was probably in maybe 95 or maybe 96. I I, I have to look back in my records. Stanley kept great records. I have all of this stuff written down. But we got one gig after everybody said you're going to be in Europe for six weeks we got one performance at the Pori Jazz Festival in Finland. It was our first time traveling abroad. And Jyrki Kengas was the booker. And when, I, when we got there, I, I asked him, I was like, Jyrki, what, what happened? You guys were so enthusiastic. And you were like hugging us. And you know, you're know, you coming to Europe. And they were all so great. And he said to me, everybody thought because they were drunk and they drank so much that you couldn't have been as good as they remembered.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: You're only women. That's what he said and i looked at him and i said well thank you for telling me the truth so they were there partying listening to us having a great time they had you know they were you know all right drinking having fun but then their memory was like oh no that couldn't have been good they're just women so we got one gig thank thank you Yerky Kengas for bringing us over there because that sort of started us on a path of then getting a great european agent and working in europe quite a bit and yeah so there's that's that's a like a very quintessential story about how how women were were viewed and it's better. Everything's better. It's moving, you know, it's moving like the speed of grass growing. You can't even say like the glacier is melting now because the glaciers are melting too fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's not even uh, yeah, right. the, the social progress um, is it's, it's much better. You clearly see women getting much more recognition, deserved recognition than they ever have in the history of this music from the, the super band Artemis, um, certainly Ingrid Jensen and not Cohen. I mean, there's so many great women I'm going to just focus on instrumentalists now, getting getting the rightful recognition that they deserve. But the, but there's been women like that throughout history that have gotten no recognition. And besides,
0: you know, you know, if you were to go to a venue and close your eyes and not see in front of you, all you could do is appreciate the music that you're hearing and it's top rate quality music.
1: Yeah. One of Stanley's mantras is like, music has no gender. You can play if you can play. And then, you know, to top all that off, it's like, stop listening with your eyes. You know, that's insanity. But we all do, uh, Thanks, especially thanks to MTV, <laughs> whenever right. that started. But yeah, music suddenly became a visual art form. But I will tell you a funny story to, about that. Um, one of our first, re- we recorded several of our first CDs at a wonderful studio called NOLA. It was in the penthouse above Steinway Hall in New York on the corner of 57th and 6th. The engineer was Jimmy Zach, uh, who passed away. It was a, such a, like, Oh my gosh, like a jazz greats recorded. They're like like crazy. So Jimmy Zach used to have a, get a kick out of taking some of our tracks and he'd play it for, you know, a bunch of the um studio musicians that came in, typically all men, and 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 just people coming in there to record. And Jimmy would play something and go, guess what band this is? Mm. And uh, they'd be like, Oh, is that Woody Herman? Wait, whose band is that? What but you know, the drummer, I hear that that Chinese symbol, is that Mel Lewis? Which, you know, and like people would they would guess, and then Jimmy jokingly would say, Nah, it's a bunch of chicks, and they wouldn't believe it. Isn't that funny? The the, the minute they heard it was women, they're like, "Oh, it's not good," even though they were like uh, already like complimenting how how swinging it was, et cetera. But the minute it's like, uh, "Oh no, that's women," it's like, "What?" <laughs> well,
0: that that's
1: uh, I know it's ridiculous, but it's this story where we're all socialized and we all have those subconscious or unconscious biases that it's really hard to to shake unless you have an awareness of it.
0: But as far as you're concerned, and the other women in the ensemble, the band plays on.
1: I'll tell you the turning point. I, you know, I never thought about, yay, you know, women power. This is going to be an all woman band. Like when Stanley approached me, I thought to myself, "Oh man, this is Stanley Kane. and I'm going to get to play all these great big band charts." Like I wasn't, even, I wasn't even thinking anything about women's equality or, at all, other than like, yeah, these are here's a bunch of great women. Let's do this. But it wasn't like the, on my front burner. When it happened was when I really got more, more uh, consciously invested in this was when a version of Diva was playing at Atlanta at the Woodruff Theater. We were on tour with Maurice Hines in a show called Tapping Through Life. I brought some music, Nine Piece version. I brought some people and um, we picked up some other musicians and I called the theater when we were headed there for, for like a month. We were playing there. And I said, uh, oh, uh, I forgot the woman's name. I need six horn players. You know, Lee trumpet, trumpet, trombone, three saxes, alto, tenor, barry. And her words to me, this was like six years ago, maybe, maybe eight years. Oh, my God. Women don't play those instruments. And I, you know, Alan, if I tell you this, I don't know if you've ever had this. I got so angry. I felt fire rise from my, t- my uh, solar plexus up through my face. My ears got red. My whole face got red. And I was so angry at that statement. I could not believe it. A person in charge of a major performance venue in a major city in the United States is telling me women don't play trumpet, trombone and saxophone. Well, that from that moment, I was like, all right, this is ridiculous. This is all right. I'm going to focus on this because Diva has had men men play many times with us, you know, because gender can't surpass talent. If I can't find a woman that can play the book, I'm not put it would be so disrespectful and horrible for anybody that's a, that all the people in Diva who are great players So to say, you know, I'm going to dig hard and deep and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, I still, you still have, I still have a strong desire to give many women opportunities where sometimes they're not, they're not given, you know, at least make some kind of a equal footing and and an attempt to do that. I really, I really turned a corner when, when she said that to me, I just thought, how can this be happening right now? (laughs) What century is this? Like what's happening? Geez. So that, that made me more consciously, Very, very, very conscious of, you know what, I'm sorry to say, but that's still, you know, not even close to being equal. And the diva jazz orchestra is going to uh, exist in part to give, to continue to give extremely talented women a a great opportunity. So that's, that's when I became more focused on it.
0: And you do that indeed and do it Mm -hmm. extremely well. So the, the, the diva jazz orchestra is comprised of 15.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Why 15? I, I I know it sounds like a silly question, but is there some balance to it in terms of either the sound uh, coming from the horn section or some other factor that I'm maybe not seeing?
1: Just It was Buddy Rich's instrumentation. That's all. Uh, three trombones instead of four saves a little money. Same with minus the guitar. I mean, and in hindsight, I mean, I love four trombones because of the the writing aspect of it and the, the harmonic, you know, structures you can get within the, the band when you have four trombones. Um, I don't miss guitar truthfully. I mean, I guess if the guitar player was like Freddie green and just, you know, given that great rhythm, but in the style of music, we play some, some of our charts, it would be spectacular to have guitar. And, but most of the time I don't miss having a guitar in the band. So I think part of it was, you know, maybe economics at, at the time, but, but it's, 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 buddy rich's instrumentation so that's why we had that
0: right now uh, you also have the uh, five play which is comprised of people that are also in the orchestra as well or is are they yeah
1: oh yes um stanley had an idea long a long while ago he said you know like woody woody herman had woody in the woodchoppers and Tommy Dorsey had the clam bake seven and a lot of big bands had smaller configurations that could be offered. I suppose if somebody, a venue, you know, or, or a individual booker couldn't afford the big band, they're like, Oh, well, here's another option. So five play is modeled, you know, clearly with the same musical heart and focus as, as diva. And we do do also a lot of originals, a lot of arranged standards and, um, Yeah, that actually, the first version of that was a group called Unpredictable Nature. Really, I think perhaps even before Diva recorded, we recorded with that quartet. That was Jill McCarron, Melissa Slocum, myself, and Carol Chaikin was a sax player. But then that band morphed into Five Play. Um, And that's had a bunch of iterations. When Anat Cohen was in Diva for 10 years, we had Anat Anat in the band. Um, Jamie Dauber's been the trumpet and flugelhorn player forever. And uh, my two rhythm section mates, um Noriko Ueda, who's who's currently in Artemis as well and a uh, Tamoko Ono amazing players and the sax, the sax chair has changed a bit um the most recent uh, person in there is Janelle Reichman who is a similar to a not genius tenor player and genius clarinetist
0: so you're heavily involved in education. I know you do some of your own educational programs, focused certainly on the drums and other percussion instruments, et cetera. But education is important to you, is it not?
1: Yes, yes. I I um I was playing in a. The reason I s- switched my path more towards education from some playing opportunities when I was. At NYU, getting my doctorate, I simultaneously was in a wedding band that worked all the time, like at least three or four times a week. And I found myself dragging my drums around, you know, a lot in in Connecticut and some, you know, suburbs here and there, sometimes, you know, amazing places in Manhattan, et cetera. But I was sitting at the drums and I started to hate to move my drums. And I started, I'm going to, the hate maybe is too strong, but I really disliked playing the music, even though it's music I, I like, like the song Celebration. And I remember being at a wedding at a country club. And playing, you know, The Bride Cuts the Cake slash Pop Goes the Weasel for like 20 minutes. And I lost my mind and I threw my drumsticks down and I walked to the bar and ordered wine and sat there. And I left the bandstand totally unprofessional. But I was like, I cannot do this. And I made a conscious choice of I would rather let me see if I can do some more teaching because I, lo- I want to talk about the music I love and I inspired me and I'm passionate about. Then I made a turn and decided not to play some of the things that weren't inspiring to me and um and focusing on on teaching and teaching jazz, and oh, I do a lot of adjudication for jazz festivals. I sometimes work as a guest soloist slash clinician, you know all across the country, doing things like that and uh yeah i I love doing uh, teaching on large scales. I currently teach at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. I teach drum set and I teach uh, Im- improvisation for drum set players, which is, I love teaching that class. It's so fun because drummers usually get the shaft in improvisation classes. They're like, drummer, just keep time for us while we go do all this fancy soloing or whatever and experiment on being creative. So uh, the University of the Arts created a class so that the drummers can you know, get the same love as everybody else. So I actually enjoy that very much.
0: So from an educational perspective, then, do you think it's easier to draw students in to the jazz idiom, because of the improvisational aspect of it, and/or the emotional element, rather than the the charts and the notes on the paper.
1: The right note's always a half step away, <laughs> harmonically and officially. But if you play a wrong note, play it again, then play it ten more times with intention, and then it becomes a cool thing. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really key to everything. But it doesn't, you know. You, of course, you still have to practice technique. And you still have to be able to play your instrument extremely well, and you still have to have an understanding of what it's like to play in an ensemble, whether it be trio or big band or a Broadway pit. You have to know when you're looking at notes what marcato is, staccato, legato, how to, how to phrase, how to add internal phrasing dynamics, how to articulate as a section. You'd know there's a whole bunch of technical skill that you need to be a great musician. And I always remind everybody, what do you want technique for? And sometimes, you know, I want to play as fast as possible. It's like, that's that's not even music. So don't even talk about that. You want techniques so you can execute the music that's in your heart and soul or that the band leader is asking you for. You want your technique so, you, so you're not in your own way. You're like, well, I can't do that because I don't have the right kind of chops. So we all have to practice that. But that's not all. That's not all of it, though. And just all the music, especially in jazz and, and rock, too, rock and pop, the way it started had nothing to do with any written music. It was all coming from the heart and soul of the creators of the music. I mean, even somebody as deep and profound as, as Coltrane, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing he played came off of a sheet of paper or that he created same with Louis Armstrong and I just I'm Charlie Parker. I mean, everybody, Miles, I mean, all of the people that changed, changed music. It's not because they were reading notes and like, what is this again? Like, what is the scale? No, it came from somewhere else and deep creativity and finding ways to, tap into that and then put it into a format that the rest of us can go wow and then then use that as part of our own creative springboards
0: you know and and i think the perfect example of that is if you were to go to a club and hear the 7 30 p.m set and then go back and hear the one at 9 30 they may have the same playlist but it sounds different
1: Yeah. And man, Alan, that's such a, that's so great too, because one of my speeches all the time to young people is there's nothing like live music. It's once in a lifetime experience, because not now because everyone tapes stuff and puts it on inter social media. (laughs) But when you're sitting in an audience, like you said, it can be the same song. Like, and if you're hearing someone for five nights in a row, it'll be different every single time. And that's the, that's a, that's a miracle of awesomeness to sit there. And this is once in a lifetime, every time you go to a live show. And I—that's why I love recording live. Truthfully, I mean, I this our recent re, diva's recent recording, "Diva Swings Broadway." For since I w- we, were, we were going to do it live at Dizzy's Club in 2020, and then again in 2021, of course, canceled because I love playing live. You cannot replicate—at least I cannot replicate—the energy of a live performance in a recording studio. I love records that have the glasses clinking from the bartender. I love the person coughing. I love like some. Murmurings And I just, I love live recordings. I don't care if there's a mistake. I don't care if a song gets like a few clicks faster or slower. I don't care because the energy, it's real. You captured a moment of awesomeness. And, and the, the audience, you know, audience and the energy of the audience res- responding, you know, or laughing like that is that's to me. That's the best. I love live, I love live recordings.
0: I appreciate your time. And I wish I had a whole hell of a lot more of it because it, it's such a fascinating conversation. And I'm sorry we missed you in March. We spent 10 days in New York and, and had a blast, but we couldn't find you playing anywhere.
1: You know, we might be um, uh, divas going on tour with the Manhattan Transfer starting in the fall for their 50th anniversary. And it's our 30th. And um, I think we're coming to Colorado. We have an October tour and then we have one in January and then one in March and one in April, like, you know, like week, 10 days here and there. So I'm pretty sure that we're going to be in your area. (laughs) I'll let you know. I can't remember off the top of my head.
0: Sherry, thanks for joining us here on All That's Jazz. And I would like to request the opportunity to maybe do a part two and talk a little more about the music itself.
1: Yeah, I would love to. Anytime you're a joy to talk to and you ask great questions, and you are a great listener, so thank you.
0: And thank you for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with drummer, composer, arranger, and educator Sherry Miracle. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you like today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.